This is an Our Savior Evangelical Free Church podcast. To learn more, visit osefc.org. Those of us remaining in here, if you have a Bible, please open it to John chapter 3. We'll be in John chapter 3 this morning. We're still fairly early on in the book of John, and we've only seen a few episodes from Jesus' life so far, but already we've seen that John is trying to help direct both our attention and set our expectations correctly. So John isn't just relaying some historical facts about Jesus. He's trying to help us see what we should notice about Jesus' life. But even here towards the beginning of the book, he started to set up our expectations of what we might find towards the end of his story. John uses the language of signs, we've seen that so far, to help bring attention to these important details of Jesus' life that we should notice along the way. The first sign that John records of Jesus' ministry was the miracle at the wedding at Cana. If you remember that one, Jesus is at a wedding and the wine is all run out, and the party is on the brink of disaster. But then Jesus performs a miracle by turning water into wine. And it wasn't just about Jesus' provision for that wedding reception, but also it was a sign that, one, Jesus had power and authority, but two, Jesus would also perfectly fulfill the role of the groom for his bride, which we'll see eventually will be the church. But John sets out that first sign to show Jesus has some sort of authority and power here that other people don't have. And then if you remember what we looked at last week is John fast forwards to a time near the end of Jesus's public ministry. We read last week how he entered the temple in Jerusalem and cleared it out of all those who had turned a place of worship into a place of business and money making. The onlookers, as Jesus was clearing out the temple, asked, what sign do you show us for doing these things? And if you remember, Jesus' response was, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Now when he said that, the people in the temple didn't understand what that meant. They started thinking about the building that they were standing in and the logistics of having it rebuilt in three days when it had taken multiple decades to rebuild But John clues us in that Jesus wasn't really talking about the building he was in. He was talking about his own body. And he was referring to his death and resurrection that would take place three days after his death. So John's directed our attention to the signs of Jesus, starting with the wedding at Cana. And then he's set our expectation of what Jesus will accomplish by giving us a hint of this sign of his authority and power worked out through the miracle of his own resurrection. So it's the two signs that bookend Jesus's ministry that John presents for us. Starts with the wedding, but it will end ultimately with Christ coming back from death three days after his execution. But what we see in the middle of that is that there are many other signs that Jesus did to testify to who he was. And as Jesus is going around performing miracles, healing people, and teaching in the synagogues, 
he's drawing attention to himself. The end of chapter two told us that some people believed in his name after seeing the signs, but it seems that maybe their belief was fleeting because Jesus, knowing their hearts, doesn't entrust himself to them. Nevertheless, as he's going about doing these powerful miracles, working out these signs, people's attention is drawn. Our passage this morning shows us one of those people who saw the signs from Jesus and wanted to know more. This man comes with a burning question that seems to be on his mind. Who are you? But Jesus answers back to a different, far better question that this man should have asked instead. So this morning as we look at our passage in John chapter 3, we want to see what Nicodemus comes in wanting to know, but then we also should pay attention to the question that Jesus ends up answering. So if your Bible is open to John chapter 3, I will read our passage for us starting in verse 1. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. The man who came to meet with Jesus, we read, is from a group called the Pharisees. The Pharisees were a religious sect in Israel who were known for their extreme piety and attempts to perfectly apply the Mosaic law in their life and in the communal life of Israel. The Pharisees would have known their scriptures backwards and forwards. They would have vast amounts of the Torah memorized, and they would be incredibly familiar with all of the commentaries and traditions that surrounded the Hebrew scriptures. The Pharisees were in first century Israel, Bible people, for lack of a better phrase. They should know God's word. They should know it well. They should have it on their mind. And they should know how to interpret and apply that word. They've dedicated their life to that task. In our Bible, we we see Pharisees all throughout, but the one we become most familiar with is the Apostle Paul, who we see most in the book of Acts, but then also in all the letters he wrote. Paul came from the group of the Pharisees. And when you read Paul, you can pick up on a few things. One, you can pick up on his command of scripture. In a time where not everyone just had a Bible sitting on their shelf at home, when the scriptures and the scrolls that the Old Testament were written down on were far more rare, Paul knows the word of God. He knows what God has spoken to his people. He has it committed to memory, but then also Paul has an intensity in his attempts to understand and live out God's word. And so those same attributes we see in Paul's life, 
we also would see in the lives of other Pharisees. Although the Pharisees that we read in the gospel oftentimes don't understand God's word well. Even Paul himself didn't understand God's word until God changed him on the road to Damascus. So the Pharisees should know their scripture. And if you've read the gospel accounts of Jesus' life, you'll know that they are one of the main groups that oppose Jesus in his teaching. They pop up all the time. The Pharisees, sometimes they bring their friends, the Sadducees, sometimes there's priests and scribes. They're one of the groups that will oppose Jesus. However, in John, this is the first time that a Pharisee has any interaction with Jesus. So far, we've only heard from them in chapter 1, when some of the Pharisees sent some messengers to try to figure out who John the Baptist was. They sent people to John the Baptist to ask, where are you from? What is this baptism you're about? Are you a prophet? But now, their attention has apparently turned to Jesus. So imagine that scene that we just read in John 3. Jesus has become something of a famous figure in his area. Rumor has it he can work miracles. There was a wedding that ran out of wine, and he was able to take some water and turn that into wine for the guests. He's going around and healing people of illnesses that even the best physicians can't take care of. And it seems wherever he goes, he's able to speak. He can speak the words of the Torah and the law that Israel has, and he's able to teach. But when he teaches, it's not like the other teachers who have just memorized what other people have said. When when this Jesus is teaching, he's doing so with authority when he speaks concerning the things of God. So for the Pharisees, this is at the very least something worth investigating. They have to at least figure out who he is and how he's able to do all these miracles he's been doing and how he's able to teach in the way that he is. In a worst-case scenario for the Pharisees, this Jesus might start to undermine the position of authority and the respect that men like the Pharisees had come to enjoy people might start listening to Jesus' teaching more than that of the Pharisees. Because his teaching seems to be backed up with some power and authority. So with something ranging from an earnest curiosity to a worried jealousy, Nicodemus sets out to meet with Jesus. He's talked to some of his colleagues, and they're in agreement. A man who's able to do these things And a man that's able to speak the way that Jesus does must come from God in some way. They don't fully know what way, but he seems to have some connection with God that other people don't always have. So Nicodemus arrives to this meeting at night. John makes sure to record that detail for us. This is the sort of detail that John loves to include. And when we read it, he isn't merely just recording a historical fact about the time of day this took place. No doubt this meeting did take place at night, but John thinks to include that detail because he's also using the imagery of light and darkness to better explain Nicodemus and his current condition. John is telling us that Nicodemus is approaching Jesus in darkness, Not just the darkness of nighttime, but more importantly, the darkness of his current spiritual state. 
John will do this several times throughout his book, using light and darkness in this way. Nicodemus hasn't seen the light of God's truth. So no matter what time the clock says, no matter where the sun is at in the sky, he is living in a perpetual spiritual nighttime. So in every sense of the word, Nicodemus arrives at night and in darkness to speak to Jesus. And when he arrives, he says to Jesus, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Notice Nicodemus doesn't actually ask Jesus a question. He just makes a statement. After seeing the things you do and hearing the things you say, we believe you are from God. But bubbling just underneath the surface of that statement seems to be the burning question for Nicodemus, who are you? Now, he's a man who's learned, he's a man who's respected, and he's a ruler of his people. And so when he enters this conversation, he doesn't want to enter in and sort of show his hand, I don't know who you are, could you tell me who you are? So instead, he tries to come in and relay, here's what I know. I've seen your works, I've talked to the other Pharisees, and here's what we believe about who you are. So Nicodemus is trying to start off by saying, I have some knowledge of who you are got some of the pieces put together because I'm smart and I've been able to piece that all together. And then he sort of trails off and waits for Jesus to fill in the last few pieces to explain who he truly is. Now, if we've been reading the gospel of John, as we have on Sunday mornings, we have a head start on this question. John's already told us who Jesus is. He's the word. God from eternity past who has become human and dwells among humans He's the light shining in the darkness, come to bring life and reveal the glory of God to any who would see him. We already know that, but Nicodemus hasn't figured that out yet. All he knows is that this is a man who performs powerful signs that must come from God. So he opens and he tells Jesus, here's what we know. He stops short of asking any questions and allows Jesus to respond so Jesus does respond to Nicodemus' remark in a quite surprising way. Look at verse 3. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus did seem mainly interested in finding out who Jesus was. He even acknowledged that Jesus was a teacher. He respected him by calling him rabbi. And he might be coming wondering if Jesus is more than a teacher. Perhaps he might even be a prophet sent from God. And Jesus, which we've already read at the end of chapter 2, knows the heart of men. He knows exactly what's on Nicodemus' mind. But instead of answering that burning question, he starts talking about the kingdom of God. In fact, there are two interesting phrases that Jesus uses in his response to Nicodemus. By interesting, I mean massively important phrases that Jesus uses in his response to Nicodemus. The first is that he tells Nicodemus he needs to be born again. For some in this room, that phrase might feel natural and familiar. My guess is that many in this room have probably even described themselves at some point as a born-again believer. And if you've been in the church, if you've been around the church, you've probably come to associate the phrase born again with someone who calls themselves a Christian. 
But before John 3, this phrase isn't found anywhere in the Bible. In fact, in all of Scripture, the phrase born again is only used four times. Twice in our passage that we just read, and then twice again in Peter's first epistle. So while we might be used to hearing the language of born again, for Nicodemus, this turn of phrase would have been new and unknown. Nicodemus' response to Jesus will attempt to clarify what that phrase means, and we'll look at that in a minute. But first, the, the second phrase that Jesus uses in this initial response is kingdom of God. This is such a classic Jesus phrase. He's always talking about the kingdom of God except that in John's gospel, he's not. In the Bible, in your New Testament, there are four accounts of Jesus's life, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We call them the gospels or the gospel accounts. The other three gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are far more similar to each other than they are to John. John is in every way the odd man out in telling the story of Jesus's life. He focuses on different things than the other three, he uses different wording. He has different themes woven throughout his gospel than the other three do. And if you read the other three gospel accounts, what you will see is Jesus using the phrase kingdom of God all over the place. He teaches about the kingdom of God. He tells parables that try to illustrate what this kingdom is like so that we can understand it. The very first thing that Jesus says in Mark's gospel is the kingdom of God is at hand. And from there on out throughout Mark, Jesus will just talk about the kingdom of God. He seems to want people to know about this kingdom, what it's like and what it's about. But in John, he only mentions the kingdom of God here with Nicodemus. And because John has taken the attention to not use this phrase throughout the rest of his book, its inclusion here seems notable. Why does John choose to use this phrase, which we see Jesus used all throughout his ministry? Why does John choose to include it here? And it seems he's drawing attention to this phrase and this concept because it's a particular phrase for a particular audience. Who is Jesus talking to? A Pharisee, a man of the scriptures and Jewish custom someone who would have known the Torah and should be familiar with what it says. So what does the Old Testament, that Torah, say about the kingdom of God? While that wording is not used specifically in the Old Testament, the concept of God's kingdom is all over the place. So what is the kingdom of God if you are a Pharisee who knows your scriptures, our Old Testament? If you read through the Old Testament, there are two overlapping ways that the kingdom of God is viewed in the scriptures. The first is that the kingdom of God is wherever God reigns sovereignly and supremely. So that would include all of creation. David says in the Psalms in Psalm 103, the Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. So in this sense, when we talk about the kingdom of God, that just means everything. There isn't a corner of the universe that doesn't belong to God or live outside of his authority. Everything exists under God's kingship and his rule. That's the first sense that we see of kingdom in the Old Testament. However, there is a more specific way that the kingdom is talked about, particularly in the prophets of the Old Testament. 
And so in the second way, the kingdom of God is seen as something arriving at the end of history where the heir of David will rule over all things in perfection. So in the Old Testament, when we read about God's kingdom, the first way we read it is that God is the creator of all things. He has authority over everything and is sovereign over all of creation. And so everything exists under his rule. But then what he reveals through his prophets throughout the Old Testament is that that kingdom will one day arrive in a much more immediate way to our experience. That kingdom will arrive at the end of history. And the promise given to David is that it is David's own heir who will sit on the throne forever and ever. And in that kingdom, righteousness will ultimately and finally prevail over all unrighteousness. So right now in God's kingdom, though he's sovereign over all, there's still plenty of sin and brokenness that remains. But in his kingdom, as it arrives at the end of time, all of that sinfulness and brokenness will be defeated and God's people will be with him eternally in perfection and in perfect righteousness. So Jesus uses this phrase, kingdom of God, with Nicodemus to help frame the conversation in Nicodemus' mind. This Pharisee came in to figure out who exactly Jesus was. He kind of just wants to know about this teacher that's in town right now and figure out a little bit more about, is there anything I can take from him or learn from him? But Jesus' response is that we're not just talking about whether or not I'm a teacher or a prophet. What you're asking about is really matters of eternity. What you're asking about is explaining how God is working throughout all of creation and all of history to bring us to this moment. Nicodemus just wants to come in to find the identity of one man, and Jesus tells him, what we're talking about right now is God's plan of salvation throughout all time. And what he tells him is, unless you're born again, you can't even see that work. You can't fully understand how God is operating in the world. So Nicodemus responds to Jesus, and he seems stuck on this first phrase. Verse 4, Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Nicodemus seems to accept Jesus' use of kingdom language to say, Okay, we're, we're talking about God and his work. We're having a discussion about how God is working through his people and history. But he wants to circle back around to this born-again language that was brought in. And he seems to be confused, either purposefully or innocently, trying to understand what that language might mean. So he, he gives one guess. Well, maybe by born again, you mean born in the same way that I was born the first time, but that seems impossible. So Jesus answers to give him clarification, and he says... Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Jesus' response is a very similar statement to his first remark to Nicodemus, but he offers some important clarifications. Notice the second time Jesus speaks to Nicodemus, the language is a little bit intensified. 
First, he said you had to be born again if you wanted to see the kingdom of God. But now he says that if you want to even enter the kingdom of God, you've got to have this birth that I'm talking about. So before he was saying you can't even see it, but now the stakes are even higher. You can't enter into this kingdom, which is to say you cannot enter into God's final perfect rule over all creation unless you're experiencing this birth I'm talking about. And this would have been news to Nicodemus because for the Pharisees and the rulers, the assumption was that unless you were grotesquely evil or apostate, if you were in the people of God, if you're in the nation of Israel, you would enter into his kingdom at the end of time. But Jesus seems to say, now, there's some other additional requirement. It's not just good enough to be an Israelite. It's not just good enough to be an Israelite who knows and tries to observe God's law. Now you have to have a whole second birth if you want to be a part of God's perfect kingdom at the end of all things. Then Jesus clarifies this statement, born again. And this time he says that you must be born of water and the spirit. Again, Jesus understands his audience, a Pharisee with knowledge of the Old Testament. A Pharisee should know the significance of water and of spirit, and especially the significance of water and spirit together. Because it's all throughout God's word in the Old Testament. Wherever you see spirit being used in the Old Testament, the spirit of God or God's spirit, it's used to bring life. You can think back to Genesis, the creation of Adam and Eve. God forms man from the dust of the ground, but then he takes a second step and breathes in, which is a similar word to spirit, breathes in the breath of life. God's spirit is what brings life to Adam and Eve. Everything else in creation came about just from God speaking it into existence. But for man and woman, they came alive when God breathed his spirit into them. The spirit of God brings life. We see that all throughout the Old Testament, that where God and his spirit are, he brings new life. And as you read through your Old Testament, when you encounter water, it often stands in to represent a cleansing, a purification, a washing. And especially if you see those two terms together, water and spirit, your mind should turn to a cleansing, a regeneration, and a transformation. Nicodemus knows his scriptures, but so does Jesus. And Jesus is trying to help Nicodemus understand this concept from scriptures that he should already know. So as Nicodemus is mentioning this new birth, this kingdom of God, he then says this new birth is a birth of water and spirit. Nicodemus's mind should go to a passage like Ezekiel 36. In Ezekiel, God's prophet is speaking to God's people who are living in exile. And God tells his people, I will give you good shepherds to rule over you. I will restore your broken land. But then ultimately, after all of that, God says this to his people, the nation of Israel, who are scattered abroad in exile. In Ezekiel 36, I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness. From all your idols, I will cleanse you. 
and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. So what does it mean to be born again? Well, it means to be born of water and the spirit. What does that mean? Being born of the water and spirit is nothing short of a complete cleansing and transformation carried out by God as he pours out mercy and grace on his people. In Ezekiel, God's people were distant from him. They had turned to worship idols. They had been driven out from their land. They were living in exile. And what does God promise to do for them? I'll pour water on you, clean water that will cleanse you. And then I will put my spirit within you. God is telling his people through the prophet Ezekiel, I'm going to give you a new birth in which you will be cleansed, in which you will be given life. And the ultimate result of that is that you shall be my people and I will be your God. And the relationship between God and his people will be perfectly restored. So Jesus is turning to Nicodemus and he's telling him this. The problem for Nicodemus is is not that he just needs some more information. Nicodemus came into the room thinking he had most of a puzzle put together about who Jesus was. And he just needed to learn a few more bits of key information to understand Jesus and his teaching. Nicodemus thought he had done most of the work to benefit from Jesus and his teaching. And he just needed a little bit more to carry it over so that he could finally fully benefit from Jesus. Jesus tells him, you don't just need a little bit more knowledge. What you need is complete and total transformation. You've come into this room in the dark. You've come in dead. And to understand anything about who I am or what God is doing through me, you need to be cleansed. You need to have your heart made new and given life through the Spirit of God. So Nicodemus's problem isn't just that he doesn't know quite enough. It's that he's dead. And the same answer is carried forward to us as we approach Jesus. We need that same cleansing and transformation. Jesus offers that through his sacrifice on the cross. We, we just sang in several songs earlier about the cleansing power of Jesus' blood. It's not just a fun phrase we use. We truly mean that, that our lives, who we are, is stained by sin. And because of that, we are dead. But Christ, through his blood shed on the cross, washes all of that away. For any who trust in him, what we're left with is new life and complete innocence standing before God. This should change everything for us. To learn, I don't just need to be a different person or a slightly more informed person. 
if I want to understand Jesus, if I want to benefit from anything he did, I need to be a new creation. I need to have new life, and I can't do that, but God can. Nicodemus walked in, and his essential question to Jesus was, what can you offer me? I'm someone who's collected all sorts of teaching and knowledge. I hear that you have some good teaching, probably even from God based on the signs that you can do. So what can you offer me? And Jesus responds to Nicodemus, you don't even know what it is you need because you came in wanting knowledge or teaching, but what you need is new life. You need cleansing and transformation. And the same is true for us. Whether you have followed Christ for a very long time or you have not followed him for one day of your life, what you need most is the cleansing of Jesus' blood and the transformation made possible through his spirit. And if we remember that's who we are and where we're at in life, that will impact our life in every way imaginable. So I want to spend just a minute thinking about how it would impact my life to understand that what I need from Christ is cleansing and transformation. Even if I've been following him for years, what I still need from Christ is transformation from one degree of glory that I'm currently in to the next where I look a little bit more like Christ. That's what I need from Christ. How does that impact my life? Let's think about how that, that might change our prayer lives to be mindful of our need for cleansing and transformation. It means that when we pray to God, we can remember that apart from him, we were dead and lost in our sins. So we can pray and ask him to root out whatever's in us that wants to live in that old way. We can pray and ask him to work out the new life that we've been born into. If we remember that, that we're creatures who have been cleansed and are being transformed, that means that when we're convicted of sin, we don't have to run away from God and try to remain distant until we can clean ourselves up, look a little bit more presentable, and learn our Bible a little bit better. It means that when we sin, we can run to God who has cleansed us, who has forgiven us, and is working to transform us. And when we run to God, what we can do is we can say, I've been here a thousand times, 10,000 times, because I keep sinning, and I want to know, does your mercy and grace still cover this sin? And we can rest assured that God will always look at us and say, yes. Because I'm transforming you, and I've cleansed you through the blood of Jesus. It means in our prayer lives that we can thank God because we experience a new life that was impossible for us to ever know apart from him but now we enjoy new life in him and we experience grace upon grace in our life every day. If we're mindful of ourselves as creatures in need of cleansing and transformation, it means that we ask God to continue working in us, to strengthen us, to continue transforming us, that we might look more and more like our Savior. If we remember this in the life of our church, that we're a group of people who need complete renewal, who need new life, it gives us incredible grace for one another. Because we didn't get here 
by our own accomplishment. We didn't get into some club because we had learned enough of our Bible or memorized enough scripture. We got here through the blood of Jesus. He's the one who brought us all together. It means we can have patience with each other because we're still in need of continued transformation. So we're going to sin against each other. We're going to hurt each other. But we can have patience knowing that God is working in all of us. That while our salvation is secured, it's confirmed through Christ's death and resurrection, there's still sanctification, there's still transformation happening within us. And ultimately, when that kingdom of God arrives fully, we'll still be together as brothers and sisters, but we'll be perfect, and all the sin and hurt that we have between each other will be put away forever. If we're mindful of this, it means that together, as a family, we can have humility. Again, knowing we're not saved because of our accomplishment. We were saved as an act of God's mercy. That's the only way that he will save anyone. If we think of ourselves as creatures who needed cleansing and are in need of transformation, it should change our evangelism. We should think of those who are lost like Nicodemus, arriving in the darkness of nighttime. People who think they have understanding, like we once thought we had understanding, but apart from God, cannot understand the first thing about who God is or what he is doing to save them. So that should change how we pray for family members and friends who don't know Christ as we ask God to shine his light into their darkness because we cannot impart enough knowledge or say enough words to get someone into salvation. That's an act of God alone. We ought to pray for renewal and second birth for those around us. Pray for God to open their ears, open their eyes to his word. So this morning as we close our time, if you're not trusting in Jesus as your savior, hear this. You can't try and extract some of Jesus' teaching and advice to try and improve your life. If you have not been convicted of your sin and turned to Christ as your Savior, you won't be able to see or understand the kingdom of God or anything that Christ has done. Jesus is not some sort of spiritual guide or guru that can just help you attain a better life. He is a Savior come to give new life through his blood. So if you have not yet trusted in him, pray and confess your sin and ask for forgiveness and you will find it and you will find new life through him. Only then will you understand fully why Jesus came. Only then will you see truly what he was about on this earth. What you need is not just a little bit of new advice or a novel teaching. What you need is new life. And Jesus offers that. And if you're in this room and you've already trusted in Jesus as your Savior, may we never forget that we were once dead in need of a second birth, in need of cleansing and life through the Spirit of God. And God has made us alive, made us born of the Spirit, 
so that we can be his people. He can be our God so that when his kingdom arrives, we will be with him forever and ever. Let's pray. Father, thank you for Nicodemus's curiosity and for the teaching of your son that we can see our need for a savior and our desperate need for new life. I ask that you would keep us mindful of our own transformation that has taken place through your spirit, that we might not be puffed up and prideful, but we might remain humble, knowing that the salvation we have experienced has only been made possible through you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Our Savior is a congregation located in Wheeling, Illinois. Our vision can be summed up in four words building community, bringing Christ. To learn more about this vision and our hope for our neighborhood, visit us online at osefc.org.